Today's scripture reading is from two passages. Isaiah 40, 25 to 31, and Philippians 4, 8 to 9. First, Isaiah 40, 25 to 31. To whom, then, will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might, and because he's strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now Philippians 4, 8 to 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Can you join me in prayer? Father, we come before you as needy people. We delight in your greatness. And we recognize our need for you. We recognize what you have provided in for us. And especially who you have provided for us. Your very presence through your Holy Spirit. And that through him we are given the mind of Christ, the ability to think godly thoughts and to understand spiritual things, to discern spiritual thoughts by the illuminating work of your Spirit and also the empowering work of your Spirit that empowers us to do that which you command us to do. Father, we're grateful that your peace guards our hearts as instead of responding to the circumstances of life with anxiety, we respond by thankful prayer. 
and that you, the very God of peace, is also with us as we learn to develop the habit of thinking godly and acting godly. Father, we want you to be honored. We want you to be glorified. And as we continue to worship you this morning, we'd ask that you'd help us to understand your word, that we might be effectual doers of it, giving all honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So in approaching this morning, I was asked the question often, are you ready? Now, a lot of thoughts went through my mind uh, from different parts of theology. One, the sovereignty of God. The question, am I ready? To a certain extent, doesn't matter. It's going to happen, and I'm going to be here, and we got to go for it. In the doctrine of man, I realize, though, that I'm frail and I'm weak, and that I'm a sinner, and that I'm fallible, and then the answer is no. But in the doctrine of salvation, I realize that I've been and become a new creation, and that I have a new relationship, and that there's a dependence on the Lord, and then the answer is yes, in Him, I'm ready. And when we think about the, what we've been studying in the book of Philippians, when you look at chapter 4, verse 1, as Paul is, is bringing this letter to a close, read what he says, or see what he says in verse 1. He says, Therefore, my brothers, and so in light of the great doctrine and in light of the great theology that we have been talking about, that I have been expanding and expounding on, uh, in particular our citizenship in heaven, that from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I long and long, or love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And the practical aspect here, as Paul often does, is that he concludes with these practical applications to the doctrine that he has been teaching us. Because another reminder is that doctrine is practical, and our practice is always doctrinal. And what he says in verses 8 and 9 is that what he's doing here now is bringing us a conclusion of what it means to stand firm in Christ. He says, finally, brothers... And this concludes what he has begun in in verse 1. It ties to the therefore, but it also ultimately ties to the content of all that letter. That finally, we come down as citizens of heaven. We stand firm while we are here. And that word for stand firm is a Greek word, stecho. and, And you can remember it because you just think about you're driving a stake into the ground. You're standing firm. We don't get the word stake from that Greek word. I'm just saying that the word sounds like that, and so you can think of it like that. That we're standing firm. There's a driving the stake in the ground that when the trials and the temptations and the circumstances of life are bludgeoning us and coming at us, that we are standing firm in our faith. 
And we are standing firm in our prayer life. We are standing firm in our thought life. We are standing firm in our response and our behavior to those circumstances. The church standing firm against temptation and doubt and trying circumstance is a constant concern for Paul. To the church in Corinth, he says, be watchful, stand firm. To the church in Thessalonica, he says, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. And even earlier in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and I see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We are to be spiritually durable. We are to be spiritually strong. We are to be spiritually steady and stable. We are not to be tossed to and fro by the waves of deceit. We are not to be teetering by temptation. And we're most definitely not to be toppled by worry and doubt and fear. Paul says we stand firm. And and he gives us a few ways of standing firm. This whole verses from chapter 2 or verse 2 and following are all giving us very practical ways in which we actually stand firm in the Lord. And the first one in verse 3 is that we stand firm by cultivating unity. When he says, I ask you, true companion, help these women. The idea was help these women be reconciled and to be unified. Unity is a huge theme in the book of Philippians. It's a huge theme in in the church and in the letters that are given to the church. And so we are to stand firm by being unified, by being reconciled. How unnerving It is at times to be at odds with one another. Within the church, within friendships and with families, it's absolutely destabilizing to be irreconciled. It's impossible to be spiritually strong and steady when we are not reconciled with others. There's a premium that is placed on reconciliation. Mark 11.25, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. In Matthew 5, 23, 24, if you are offering your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Secondly, he says we stand firm by finding our joy in Christ And not in right circumstances or right feelings. He says in verse 5, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord, sorry. Rejoice in the Lord. He says again, I will say, rejoice. The idea there is find your joy, find your contentment, find your happiness, find your excitement in Christ and in the things of Christ. Do not depend on right circumstances or right feelings. But instead, may your joy be anchored to Christ. Third, we stand firm by being reasonable or gentle, having a a forbearing spirit. He says, let your reasonableness be made known to all. The, The word implies forbearance. It implies tolerance. It implies being gentle when you are being mistreated. It implies that you are tolerant even when you are passed up for something that you deserve. Maybe you deserve the raise. Maybe you deserve that promotion and you've been passed up, but there's a reasonableness about you. There's a gentleness about you in response to that. 
And then in fifth, we stand firm. Or fourth, we stand firm by trusting God. Verse 6, he says, do not be anxious about anything. But instead, we, we put our trust in the Lord. We trust His wisdom. We trust His purposes. We, we trust His plan. We trust His promises. We trust Him. And then we stand firm by depending on God through thankful prayer. That do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And, and so there's a dependence on the Lord. And then fourth, we stand firm. I'm sorry. Six. I'm getting my numbers mixed up here. Six, we stand firm by thinking rightly. And seventh, we stand firm by acting rightly. And so there's really two main points to this sermon, verse 8 and verse 9. The point of verse 8 is think godly, and the point of verse 9 is act godly. And, and they all are addressing, finalizing, bringing to conclusion, what does it mean to stand firm in Christ? And so Paul ties all of this together. And what he is saying is take all that you've learned and dwell on it regularly. Ponder it. Meditate it. Evaluate every thought you have and filter it through what you have learned from God and His Word. Filter it through Scripture and then practice it. We are expected to be effectual doers of God's Word, not mere hearers. And so our thinking, though, what Paul does here is he helps us understand that our attitudes and our thoughts precede our behavior. And so he starts with helping us understand that we must discipline ourselves to think godly. We have to think godly. When Paul says think about these things, he uses a word that means to give careful thought to a matter. It means to consider, ponder, or let one's mind dwell on. It it is not merely a flyby thought or a fleeting thought. But it is something we camp on, we dwell on, we meditate on, we ponder, we evaluate, we turn it over, we twist it. Matter of fact, it is where we get the word logarithm from. We are to calculate, we are to evaluate, we are to give special and arduous thought to this. Thinking carefully is vital to the Christian faith. Proverbs 23, 7 in the New American Standard says, For as he thinks in himself... So he is. And Matthew twenty two thirty seven says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Yes. We are to be thinking people, pondering people, people who dwell on godly thoughts. God commands people to think. He, he said to the rebellious Israel, Come now and let us reason together. Jesus chides and uh, the unbelieving Pharisees and Sadducees were demanding a miraculous sign. Instead, he challenged them to think and to draw inferences from the evidence before them. In Luke, he said to the crowds, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? See, God gave us his revelation. He gave us a book. He gave us the Bible and he expects us to use the minds that he gave us. Through the Holy Spirit to understand its truths. Paul said, set your mind on the things above and not on the things on earth. 
In addition, Peter said, gird your minds for action. More than a dozen times in his epistles, Paul asks his readers, do you not know? Do you not know? He expected believers to think and to evaluate. When I was in high school, going from high school, transitioning from high school into college, I had this wonderful, glorious, glamorous job. I worked in a plastics factory. And my shift was from 11 p.m. till 7 a.m. And then a few hours after that, I'd go and work my day job. I ultimately was trying to earn as much money as I possibly could before I went to college. Only at the end of the summer to have to replace the engine in my 1964 Volkswagen Bug. (laughs) But one of the incredible glamorous tasks that I had while I was there was I had to inspect scribble tips. Now, scribble tips are very, very tiny. If you think about the end of your pen and then go just a little bit smaller, okay? And at the end of that, there's a small hole. These were designed for airbrushing. And if there was a sliver of plastic in that hole, I rejected it. And if it was clear and clean, I accepted it. Needless to say, around 3 or 4 in the morning, I fell asleep a few times. There's a reason why the brake sirens are as loud as they are, right? It's the only thing that wakes you up. But as I think about that, the amount of energy and the amount of time and the amount of effort that I put, put into grabbing one handful after another handful and tediously and arduously looking at that scribble tip just to see if there was a sliver of plastic in there so that it could be rejected so that I could keep that which is clean and clear and would be effective, I think to myself, I can at least apply that to my thought life. And that's what Paul is saying. We have to give careful thought to what we are thinking. Because it's vital to the Christian faith. And we live out what we think. How we think affects our behavior. Mark 7.20, Jesus said, he, who, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man. And the heart of man is equated to what is in the inside. It refers to the inner side of each and every one of us. It refers to our thoughts. It refers to our feelings. It refers to our motives and our desires and our wants. And what he is saying is what is inside will work itself out. If again, we want to change what's on the outside, we have to first change what's on the inside. Thinking is essential to saving faith. It is also essential to sanctifying faith. Romans 12.2 says, be transformed by the renewal of the mind. We are to experience a metamorphosis. That's the word for transform. We are to experience a change. We are to become different people. How does that happen? By the renewing of our mind. Romans 8.5, Paul writes, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. And a way to illustrate this, we like to use a diagram that we entitled the tree diagram. Real novel title. But uh, this diagram helps us to understand the, the impact that our wants and our thoughts have on our behavior. Every one of us face circumstances in our lives. We face trials. We face temptations. And how we behave and how we respond to those circumstances is determined by what we worship, what we want, and what we're thinking. 
And on the right, it's, it's done in gray. It, it represents those things that would be fleshly, those things that would be corruptible, those things that would be ungodly and part of the old self. And, and we are to reject those things. We, we are to put those things off. And instead, we are to put on that which is godly. And it starts with first from a worship of the Lord from the heart of loving the Lord our God with all of our mind, with all of who we are. Our wants are then godly wants, which then develop into godly thoughts, which then proceed, go forth into godly behavior in response to those trying circumstances. And so what Paul is saying is that we have to think carefully because it's so vital to our Christian life and to our Christian faith and to our walk before the Lord. Right thinking is to be an ongoing discipline in our lives. And so we must not only think carefully, but we think carefully continuously. We think carefully, continuously. When he says to think on these things, it's in the present tense, and it means that we do this on an ongoing basis. It's something that must characterize our lives. We are to be thinking people, constantly evaluating our thoughts. Second Corinthians 10.4 says, The weapons of our warfare are not of, this fle- not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And strongholds are equated to arguments and to thoughts that we run to or that we trust in. When we talk about a stronghold, a stronghold was a fortification. It was a, a fortress. And used metaphorically, it refers to strong points or arguments in which we trust. And sometimes we put our trust in thoughts that are not biblical. And we have to evaluate them. And we have to destroy and, and to take every thought captive, those things that do not equate to biblical thinking. We continually think godly, evaluating all our thoughts accordingly, taking every thought captive, making them submit to Christ. And this is our duty because we are to think carefully and continuously by way of command. This is a command. This is an imperative to think on these things. It's not an option. We have been given the mind of Christ, informed by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, and infused with the Holy Spirit, enabling us to understand the Word of God and empowering us to put God's Word into practice. The Holy Spirit of God is the one who knows the mind of God. The thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God, said Paul. We as believers have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. What an incredible asset. What an incredible gift we have from God. There are plenty of good, virtuous, holy, and godly things to think about. And our minds need that constant renewal. We saw that in Romans 12, 2. We see it in Ephesians 4, 23. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Colossians 3, 10. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 says, Test everything. Hold fast what is good. We think about the right content. And so we must think carefully. We must think continuously. We must think by way of command. And we must think on the right content. We must think on the right content. You know, anxiety is often equated to thinking too much. That's what it's often equated to. But it's not that we think too much. It's that we don't think enough about the right content. Implied in that word 
is a mind that is in the wrong world. Implied is that it's thinking more worldly, earthly, and temporal. And and remember the connection in in chapter 3 is that we are citizens of heaven. And And the idea or the opposite of anxiety is that the mind is not in this world, but the mind is in heaven. Dwelling on, thinking on the things of heaven. There was a woman one time that had contacted me in absolute despair. She had seen a number of people to try to get help with her anxiety. She had just been to one of the leading clinics on helping people with anxiety. And she calls me and she tells me what they had asked her to do, that they had asked her to make a journal, a list of all of her worries, of all of her anxious thoughts, of everything that is negative, that she thinks about, of all of her fears, and that she is then to read that journal every night before going to bed, and that she is to take it with her during the day and read it throughout the day. And my counsel to her was this. Do not stop what you're doing. Now, before you get concerned about me. (laughs) I said, just change the content. Let's change the content. We went to this passage and we began to search the scriptures for the things that are true and the things that are honorable and the things that are lovely and the things that are commendable, the things that are praiseworthy, the things that are excellent. We began to make lists of those things and that's what she began to put her mind on. The change was content and it revolutionized, changed her entire life. Anxiety is not so much about thinking too much, it's just thinking about the wrong things. And this is what Jesus means in Matthew 6. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? See, He addresses their unbelief and distrust and how that affects their conduct. Worry, anxiety, depression are inseparably linked to what we think about. In Matthew 6, Jesus goes on and says, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He he is leading us down a path of reasoning. He wants us to think. He, He wants us to think about the right things, about godly things, about holy things, about virtuous things, about true things. We've been given a mind for it. And He commands us to employ it. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones and his commentary on Matthew 6 points out that the disciples' problem was that they failed to think. Instead, they allowed themselves to be controlled by their circumstances. He says this, he says, Faith, according to our Lord's teaching, in this paragraph, is primarily thinking. And the whole trouble with a man of little faith is that he does not think. He allows circumstances to bludgeon him. That is the real difficulty in life. Life comes to us with a club in its hand and strikes us upon the head and we become incapable of thought, helpless and defeated. The way to avoid that, according to our Lord, is to think. We must spend more time in studying our Lord's lessons in observation and deduction. The Bible is full of logic and we must never think of faith as something purely mystical. 
We do not just sit down in an armchair and expect marvelous things to happen to us. That is not Christian faith. Christian faith is essentially thinking. Look at the birds. Think about them. Draw your deductions. Look at the grass. Look at the lilies of the field. Consider them. The trouble with most people, however, Lloyd goes on to say, is that they will not think. Instead of doing this, they sit down and ask, what is going to happen to me? What can I do? That is the absence of thought. It is surrender. It is defeat. Our Lord here is urging us to think and to think in a Christian manner. That is the very essence of faith. Faith, if you like, can be defined like this. It is a man insisting upon thinking when everything seems determined to bludgeon and knock him down in an intellectual sense. The trouble with the person of little faith is that instead of controlling his own thought, his thought is being controlled by something else. And as we put it, he goes round and round in circles. That is the essence of worry. That is not thought. That is the absence of thought. A failure to think. We are to be thinking people. And we are to think continuously and carefully by way of command and on the right content. And Paul gives us our criteria for what we're supposed to be thinking about in verse 8. And I want you to note the six occurrences of whatever, followed by two instances of if there is anything. In other words, we don't merely think of one, but of all in their broadest sense as ordained by heaven. Each of these characteristics, although similar words to, to moral, secular thought, must be defined by what heaven says is true and honorable and lovely and so on. If you're in California and you barbecue, that's an action. That's a verb. That's something you go do. You go put something, anything, on an outdoor grill and you're barbecuing. But when you go to the South, barbecue is not a verb. Barbecue is a noun. It is meat. Prepared in a very special way. The point is, is that the word is defined by the cultural context in which you find yourself. And so when Paul says, think about what is true, what is honorable, what is lovely, he's saying, according to our citizenship in heaven. That's what determines what is true and honorable, lovely, and so on and so forth. So Paul tells the Philippians to meditate on whatever things are true. Truth stands over against falsehood. It has the norm in God. It goes hand in hand with goodness and righteousness and, and holiness. It peaks in the gospel. It belongs to the armor of the Christian soldier. Very similar context in Ephesians 6. He has given wonderful doctrine on, on our, who we are in Christ and then how that uh, applies to our lives, the practical aspect of who we are in Christ. And then he says, you're going to be faced with incredible trials and temptation. And so you need to put on. And he, again, uses similar language. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Again, we stand firm using godly principles and godly resources. And that's how we put our stake in the ground. And when trials and temptations and our circumstances of life come with their clubs and bludgeon us, we stand firm in our faith 
And it is a mighty work of God that enables us to do so. And he says that in verse 14 of chapter 6 of Ephesians, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Much instability and weakness occurs in our lives when we think falsely. How often do we dwell on speculation? In other words, how often do we use the phrase, what if? What if this happens? What if that happens? What if that happens? What if they do that? What? Right? You can almost sense it going. Just by asking the question, what if? You start hyperventilating. And we start thinking about things that we have no clue. We don't know. Or maybe you're more of an if-only person. Well, if only I'd done this. If only we had done that. If only we'd been there. Right? And again, you've watched enough sci-fi movies to know when anyone's ever messing with manipulating time, it doesn't matter how far back you go and it doesn't matter what you change, right? It never goes the way you want it to go. And so if you look back and say, well, if only, if only, if only, then this would have happened. No, you don't know that. And how much time do we spend thinking about and dwelling on those things? How much time do we spend being at odds with people because of what we thought they meant or what they, we thought they said? Oh, you meant that? Wow, that would have changed our relationship for the last six months if I knew that, right? There are so many relationships right now that are fractured based on lies and not on the truth. They're based on the fact because of what you think somebody meant, what you think somebody said, and we don't want to take the time to actually find out if that's what the person really meant. And then sometimes we don't want to humble ourselves and say, oh, that's what you meant? Oh, good. Instead, no, that's not what you meant. I know what you meant. Really? You do? See, again, these are all the, the different ways in which we can, we can actually dwell on things that are not true. We need to dwell on what is true, and truth is in God's Word. That's where our minds need to be. We need to correct false thinking, false theology. We need to make certain that we scrutinize all our thoughts according to God's Word. We need to ask the question at times, why do I think that way? Or where did I get that thought from? And we want to be able to tie that to Scripture. Second, Paul adds, whatever is honorable, noble, dignified, worthy of respect. It comes from the word meaning to revere or to worship. Third, whatever is just, having received from God righteousness, we should think righteous thoughts. Just is the word for righteousness or that which is right according to God. In our minds, we we, want to meditate on God's righteous acts. We want to appreciate righteousness in others. And we should plan righteous words and deeds. We must think in harmony with God's will and God's law. Fourth, think on whatever is pure. That which was impure and immoral was constantly tempting the Philippians. As that constantly tempts us. We must fill our minds with whatever is pure and holy. 
Everyone who has thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Like a soldier who guards a base, we must guard our hearts. That's the imagery that we're given in Proverbs 4.23. He says, keep your heart with all vigilance. The, the Hebrew word there wants to portray a picture for us of a guard who, or, who, a soldier who is standing guard. Are we, are we standing guard over our hearts? And watching out for what is coming in. We want to be very careful when we listen to music or watch certain shows or or read certain books or magazines or articles. Does it cause us to dwell on and think on things that are impure? And if it does, then we need to root it out. We don't we don't need any help. Right? We don't need any help thinking impurely. So root out all those things. Put a guard. Resolve to be like King David. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk. I love this. I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. So we think on that is what is pure. Fifth, whatever is lovely. That which is amiable, pleasing. Let us meditate, take into account those things. Sixth, whatever is commendable or of of good report. That word appears only here in the New Testament. It describes what is highly regarded or well thought of. And Paul summarizes it by saying, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Nothing that is really worthwhile for us to ponder and take into consideration is omitted from this summarizing phrase of Paul. One commentator said this, Anything at all that is a matter of moral and spiritual excellence, so that it is the proper object of praise, is the right pasture for the Christian mind to graze in. I just like that imagery. That's the right pasture for your mind to graze in. So I want you to think about not a passage, but a pasture. And consider the pasture of Isaiah 40. In this passage, we see that God ultimately is our comforting God. He is our incomparable God. And He is our dependable God. He comforts us with His compassion and mercy. He's a a triumphant King who comes to rescue us. What He says is sure and everlasting. In verse 8, chapter 40, the flower fades, but the Word, our God, will stand forever. He is mighty and gentle Verse 10 and 11, it says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. He is our incomparable God. He is the Creator of all things. And He oversees all things. He's the Lord of creation and He's the Lord over creation. Consider these verses. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who's measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows Him His counsel? Whom did He consult and who made Him understand? Who taught Him the path of justice and taught Him knowledge and showed Him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, 
are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. To whom will you liken God? Verse 25, 26, To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes. On high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And, and in light of these great truths, the practical aspect that the prophet was drawing Israel's attention to was that because of the greatness of God, let me then call you in to reason with you. Why do you say, O Jacob? And why do you speak, O Israel? My way, it's hidden from the Lord. And my right is disregarded by my God. You mean to tell me that in light of what we've just read, that you don't think He cares for you? Is that what you're telling me? There's no reason to doubt His concern. And there's no reason to doubt his ability. He goes on. Have you not known? Again, let me draw you into reason. Let me draw you into thinking. Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint. He doesn't grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. The young men shall fall exalted, but not our God. Do you question his ability? In light of what we've just seen, in light of what you just heard, in light of what you've just read, do you question his ability? This is the reasoning with the nation of Israel. God's bigger than any circumstance or trial that you or I will ever face now or in the future. And when we face him, we don't want to forget the greatness of God. Because it is those who wait on the Lord. See, not only... Should we not question whether He cares? Should we not question His ability? But as well, we should not ever question His timing or His wisdom. Because what He says is those who wait on the Lord, those who wait, those who wait for Him, those who trust in Him, those who trust in His wisdom and His plan and His purpose and His promises, those are the ones who will be strengthened. Those are the ones who will stake their... Lives in the ground and stand firm. Those are the ones who, like the wings of eagles, will fly in the face of trial and temptation. Therefore, we don't take matters into our own hand, but we wait on the God, on God. And so by command, we are to think carefully and continuously on the content of heaven. In essence, Paul is saying, since there are so many excellent and worthy things out there, Focus on them. And the key to godly living is godly thinking. And so, to stand firm, Paul concludes by commanding us to act godly. Congruent to biblical thought, godly behavior is the result of godly attitudes and thinking. And so Paul says in verse 9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And that word that is used for practice, it refers to an ongoing and continuous Basis. It, it refers to something somebody does without any completion and without end. It would be likened more to a doctor or an attorney who has a practice instead of, say, a, a sports team that practices. Okay. It, it, it's an ongoing 
perpetual activity of doing what you have learned and what you've received and what you've heard and seen in me. And when you look at the word learned and received, the word learned, it's where we get the word for disciple. That we are learners. And in essence, what Paul is saying is, is that which we and myself and all the other apostles have taught you. How we've exposited and explained the scriptures to you. Do these things. And you have received them. In essence, you've received them warmly and you've received them for what they are. The word of God. And then he says, what you have heard, in other words, whatever they had heard about him, that is true, about the way he lived his life. In other words, we are to develop habitually a practice of doing the word of God that we have learned by both word and by example. And while Paul is saying, you have heard about my life, you've heard about the way that we have lived, and matter of fact, you've seen it. For the apostles in that day lived among the people. And the people in the church in Philippi had ample opportunity to witness and to see the life that Paul lived. How did he face trial? How did he face temptation? How did he respond to particular people in particular ways? And then he calls upon them to imitate him. Imitation, in essence, is the simplicity of discipleship. He says to the Corinthian church, I urge you then be imitators of me. And even earlier in chapter 3, verse 17 of Philippians, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. And then, catch this, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In other words, do you see the context of community that he's laid out there? See, in in Ephesians 4, it talks about how the body of Christ is going to build itself up. How does it build itself up? Well, as apostles have followed Christ, and then we're called to imitate their following of Christ, and then others follow us as we follow apostles who imitate Christ, and then others follow them who follow them who follow the apostles. And now I'm gone, I'm lost, I don't know exactly how many followers we have, but you get the point. We, we follow one another. There's a sense where we live in such a life that we're running such a race that we're growing in our knowledge of God and growing in our likeness of God and making Him known so well to others that there is something to imitate. As we imitate Christ and then we learn from one another and we continue one anothering one another. We disciple one another. We counsel one another. We're engaged and involved in people's lives. This is fellowship. And that's how we grow. And that's how the body of Christ grows itself and builds itself up. And Paul says, you've heard the way I've lived. You've seen the way I've lived. You've heard, you've learned what we've taught. You've received what we taught as the Word of God. So, discipline yourself to a habitual practice of those things. And then Paul concludes with this great promise. And the God of peace will be with you. In verse 7, it was the peace of God will be with you and will guard your hearts. And here it is the God of peace. It is not just God's peace. It is God Himself who will be with you. God will make it a habit to walk supportively with us every step of the way. We're given the peace of God and the God of peace. But this comes through a cooperative work. This is what Paul means when he says in chapter 2, verse 12, 
My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We have a responsibility to stand firm. We have a responsibility to think godly and to act godly. And as we do that, God will most definitely uphold His end of the bargain and His very presence will be with us and His very peace will guard our hearts. And in closing, by way of illustration, we have the parable of the two houses in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. And I want you to see this and listen to what it says. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, that's every single one of us, and does them, therein lies the difference. will be like a house or be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, circumstances of life came bludgeoning, came with clubs, the floods came, the winds blew, they beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had founded on the rock. However, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Many of us are unstable and unsteady because we're not standing firm. And in particular, we're not thinking continuously on the content of heaven. And we're not developing the habit of practicing the Word of God. So let us stand firm in the face of temptation and trial by disciplining ourselves to think godly and act godly and know that the peace of God and the God of peace will be with us. And before I close in prayer, I just wanted to let you know that there will be some folks up here that would love to pray with you if that would be of service to you, if that would be a blessing to you. As well, I'd like to invite all of you to come back tonight at 6 o'clock for our Fresh Encounter service. Wonderful time of worship and prayer and praise. And then for those of you who, who may have some special needs that you would like to sit down with somebody and ask them to pray for you specifically, there will be a, a time of desperate prayer at 5 o'clock. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for you. We're so thankful that as we even think about the command to think continuously that you've provided for us a tremendous amount of content to think about. Father, please strengthen us to do the, to discipline ourselves to think godly and to act godly. And may we continue to put our trust in your very presence and in your very help and in your very strength and in your very might. You are our great and marvelous King, our great and loving God. In Jesus' name, amen. Go serve your King.